I have one verse, well, really two verses to talk about this morning, um, but really it's chapters. Really, when it comes down to it, there's chapters to go through this morning. So uh, I'm going to introduce myself because I realize some of you might not know who I am or why I'm even here, um, but we'll do that briefly and then we'll get into the text, which talks about a really amazing passage of Scripture that we're all familiar with, but it's, it's an amazing uh, glimpse into the Savior as much as anything. So uh, by way of introduction, uh, my name is James, and I've been involved with the church um, basically for about 16 years, around there, coming up on 16. And my wife and I met at Cal Poly. We, uh, I was a freshman. I got saved when I was a freshman. I have a, a real appreciation for the ministry that God has on campus for those of you in school. Uh, first year, <clears throat> I thought I had two choices. Either A, I could uh, continue to get drunk and be carried into my dorm room and have massive headaches the next morning, or I could actually accept an invitation to a Bible study, which I had friends that were, that I'd started a meeting there in the dorms, and um, one thing led to another, and I figured it was better to investigate life as a possibility of a future and a hope rather than just get wasted and flunk out of school and waste everybody's time and money, especially my parents. So God saved me, met me, um, started reading the scriptures for the first time. Uh, I, I spent my childhood going, uh, raising, raised Catholic, and, uh, but didn't know the scriptures, didn't know the Lord for who he revealed himself to be in the scriptures. And so first time I started reading it was my freshman year in college, right here at Cal Poly. Um, fourth year, my wife and I met. Um, I had friends that were in one of my Bible studies at the time. Uh, they moved into a house, had an open room. Wendy moved in. And um, I made it my personal goal to spend every moment I could at that house. Um, she pursued me. Her, her, <laughs> she's right here, so she can testify to the validity of this. But she doesn't have the microphone, so I could say whatever I want. But, but here's one of, the, like, one of the trivial pursuit facts for you guys to know, is that her maiden name is Stalker, as in Night Stalker. And... <laughs> So I married a stalker. It's it's better to marry him than to have to deal with all the other stuff. (laughs) We have three sons. Sorry. We have three. That's your name. I can't change that. You know that. She went from being a stalker to a king, which I think is really cool. It's a lot better. Um, We have three boys. Our oldest is a freshman in high school this year. So we're getting a lot more gray up top. And uh, he's, Mitchell is uh, going to turn 14. We have a middle schooler now. Daniel's going to be 12 here in a month or so. And then our little guy, he's going to be eight, all boys. Uh, we do have a female dog, Daisy. She rounds us off. Um, but it's been great, mainly because of this. I have a, we have a picture that has uh, Mitchell and a bunch of his uh, same age. They're all bald, you know, first year birthday party, someone's party, where they all have the party hats, and they're all bald. And many of those people were, are still with us in this church. And so he's grown up all his life in this church and with the people there and their kids and everything. And it's a great blessing to us to have that kind of community. Uh, my role here in the church is basically, it's, if there's a moniker to put, put with it, it's uh, family ministries. That's what I'm in charge of doing. So that's, uh, that has a lot of hats that I get to wear, small groups and children's ministry and um, marriage ministry and... Um, UFW that we just did. Some of you guys were here for that. That was a lot of fun. That was part of our preview. Um, Big Buddies, which is a really neat ministry. You'll be hearing in the next few weeks probably, uh, where we match uh, uh, people that are willing to be mentors to single-parent family kids, both in the, in the church and outside the church at elementary school. We have a partnership with, um, 
with a principal in the school in town. So uh, just a variety of things. I'm really blessed to be a part of what's happening here. I feel, feel very humbled uh, and privileged to be a part of the staff here. And uh, Brian's an amazing guy, and I get to partner with him. I uh, have for 15 years. I uh, did worship for eight, and then last eight have been, or almost eight have been in this kind of changing role. But uh, it's been a blast. And so that's enough about me. To this morning's about really seeing a great God, a great mighty, powerful God. And I've been a believer, I've been a follower of Christ for almost 20 years now, uh, actually over 20 years now. That's scary in of itself. Um, I, I, I've been so blessed that as I've struggled at times to really be confident that Jesus died for me and loves me and I didn't blow it too much along the way that he kind of just decided, okay, that's enough and we'll go to someone else who really can be, be a good Christian. Those kind of things have gone through my mind. We're on the gamut. But one thing I've always been sure of is that God's word is revealed for a reason so that I didn't go by my feelings, but really what is true. And that is that Jesus died for me. Jesus loves me. And uh, that freshman year of college, the story has not changed for me. And uh, I, just, I just realized time and time again that God is so faithful to simply give me one message, and that is I've done everything for you when I stretch out my arms one to the other. Each direction, just symbolic that I can come in, in all the confidence in the world, more confident about this than anything else in my life, that God receives me, that he loves me, that he died for me. It is personal. And, and for all of us, that's where we have to come, to be in Christ and be confident. You have to come knowing that what he did was, yes, effective worldwide. Every generation has come and gone, has, has had an opportunity to know God's love. But in this, the reality is it's for me, my Jesus, my God, my salvation. And we can either say that with confidence or we can't say that at all. And in the time we're not confident, we got to go to the place where we know which is true, which is Jesus loves me. And, and I'm, I'm putting all my faith in that. And that's what we're talking about this whole series is faith. Faith is the evidence of things that aren't seen. They're the things hoped for. And, uh, and that's what I'm hoping in. And I hope that you're on that journey with me. Because sometimes it's hard to actually think, Jesus, are you serious? Really? Everything, all my sin, gone? Like you can totally cleanse it? East us to the West? Is that really true for me? And every time I go to the scriptures, in my doubt, the resounding yes is there waiting for me. And it's true for all of us. And that's the God that we're going to look at this morning. Is a God that did everything on your behalf so that you could have a, a life that is, that is different than slavery. And slavery for the Israelites in the book of Exodus, which we're looking at this morning, meant a great deal uh, for them, obviously, in terms of suffering. And really, there's so many similarities to where we suffer in terms of being slaves either to God in righteousness or slaves to sin. And those things are, are what we're going to look at but the whole thing over it all, just as way of introduction, I'm already giving you the whole main point, the very start. You can leave after this if you want. Is this, is that Jesus is everywhere through this whole story. Okay? Everywhere. Everywhere. Why? Because God is serious about his love for his people. And he has done everything he possibly could do to make sure that we didn't spend our lives wasting away in a land of suffering due to slavery. But, but was able to do the miraculous on our behalf so that we could live in a land of freedom. So that's what we're looking at today. Um, there are things, 
if you want to turn and start with, with me, let's go to the Hebrews passage we've been looking at. And we're going we're gonna to read the two verses, chapter 11 of Hebrews, verse 28 and 29. It says this, By faith he, that is Moses, kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he who, was destroyed the, or lest he who destroyed the firstborn should touch them. And verse 29 says, By faith they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, whereas the Egyptians, attempting to do so, were drowned. So those are our two scriptures, our two passages, two verses. Let's pray. It's a big task. Jesus, we just thank you that you are with us in this journey of life. And God, that you are just an amazing Lord who has been gracious and merciful because we have the cross to look back to. We have eternity to look forward to, confident in the love that you have for us. And I thank you that as we look at these verses, that really opens the door to chapters upon chapters of your greatness, of your power. I pray that you would use me in a way that would be effective in communicating those things, that you are the great I am. You are the one who saves. You are the one who acts miraculously, that controls the weather, the earth, the heavens. You have authority over everyone, even the devil himself. You are ultimately the great I am. And we submit to you today, and we look to your scripture in eager expectation that you would equip us to have even greater faith in a great God that you are. Lord, it's our faith that wavers, but you never do. So I pray that you would just minister to us, each person here, whether they're confident in your love or not, that you would bring us all to a place of just celebration by the end of this talk. Um, Lord, do it for your glory and your name. Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So these are the scriptures we're looking at. We're looking at the faith and the greatness and power of our God on our behalf, really, and there's a few things, main points, that I just want to give you in the onset that we're going to look at this morning. And that is, first of all, uh, how God delivered his people from slavery or bondage. You can use those things interchangeably. Number two, how Christ was displayed in these events, clearly. And number three, why we are able to be in awe of God in Christ delivering us, driving us ultimately to worship in song and with our lives. Those are the three points, okay? So we're going to look at how he delivered his people how Christ is displayed in this Old Testament story of Exodus, and why it drives us to worship in our lives and in song. So turn with me to the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 3 is where we're going to pick it up. And I just have a little bit of background to go over. You can follow along with the slides if you want. The background is this. At the end of Genesis, you have a situation where we know how did the Israelites get there in the first place? It's this. Uh, Jacob had a number of sons, one of them who was had some really loving brothers. They sold their brother into slavery as a slave, and he went down to Egypt, and there we know that God blessed him richly to the point where he rose up the ranks in with the Pharaoh at the time, and he, God blessed him there. And because of that blessing, the Egyptians were blessed. And as a result of the people being God's people being now transplanted into this foreign land, Egypt, you had generations and generations now enjoying multiplicity at incalculable rates. In other words, Egyptians number this much. Here are the Israelites, okay? Um, they were just being blessed, and they were having a lot of kids in this place uh, where they were sojourners and, and foreigners. Well, by the time you get to the end of the book of Genesis, which records all the events for the patriarchs in great detail, uh, you have a people that were not thriving in the sense of just lap of luxury, but thriving in the sense that there was just a, a lot of them. And there's two ways you deal with that. 
um, if you're the Egyptian leaders, there's two ways to deal with this potential threat because if, there's, if you're outnumbered, you're outnumbered, right? I mean, you're just, at, you're just looking at being overthrown at any time if you're outnumbered. So two ways to deal with that is, for one, you take the people that are already alive and you put them in a massive bondage as slaves. They can, they can serve two purposes. One is they can build a lot of cool stuff for you. Um, they built and built and built. And what they did was they had to accumulate at first, the straw was given to them by the Egyptians. What they would do is they take the mud of the Nile, which when you dry it, dries hard. When you strengthen it with straw, it becomes bricks by which you can build your, your different things that you're building. So if you have an architect, or in this case, leaders of Egypt, being ordered by the Pharaoh, who is, in a sense, God to, well, to himself and to the people. He's the final authority, if you get my drift. He's going to dictate, hey, I want, a lot, I want this build over here, and I want this build over here. At the beginning of Exodus, it talks about the, the Israelites specifically building two whole cities, one of which was called Ramesses. And that's where many people derive their conclusion that the Pharaoh during the Exodus that we're looking at this morning was actually Ramesses II. Um, if you saw the Prince of Egypt, it's all Ramesses. That's who they're talking about. I'm going to go into today why that's not necessarily the case um, for a variety of reasons that we don't think it was Ramesses at all, actually. Before Ramesses, about in the mid-1400s B.C., is where most people today, archaeologically, evidence-supported, looking at that era, and Ramesses was actually in the mid-1200s. So why that is, we'll briefly explain that, but at any rate, you had Pharaoh saying, what I want to do is I'm going to seriously put big, huge burdens on the backs of these potential threat people. So you'd go out, make your bricks, combine it with straw that was provided for you. Eventually, they said, we got to drive them harder, so let them get their own straw. So that meant you make bricks in the day, and you get your straw potentially at night. So they're working day and night, and still the same quota of bricks. And they're like, how are we to do that? The number two way, you, besides putting them in the bondage, that you deal with this threat is you basically just kill them. You kill them. You get rid of some numbers. They're driving up, kill the firstborn males. And that's what they did. Now, here's the thing. We talk about this kind of event happening. Um, if you put yourself in the shoes or sandals, if you will, of the Israelites at this time, just picture for a second you and your wife, you're celebrating this birth, and it's your firstborn son, and you're holding him in your arms, and somebody that's Egyptian, comes and thrusts him out of your arms. And, and you know what that means, because you weren't good at hiding him or whatever. Takes him to the Nile and just throws him in. The most vulnerable, precious thing that you have in life, being utterly cast out as bait for crocs, at least to drown if nothing else, and, and mercilessly, baby after baby after baby. And as people of God, you're sitting there thinking, I make bricks all day. And if they want to whip me, they do so mercilessly. I have stripes on my back to prove it. They don't do, we're building everything for this kingdom. We're not supposed to be here. And now they're taking our own children, our own babies, and they're casting them into the Nile. And so just that right there, when you, when you kind of let that sink in a little bit, you realize these people did, weren't just trying to do religion at this point, okay? They were gut, crying out to God. I'm sure arguing with God. I'm sure wrestling with God. I'm sure saying, God, if you're really there, why are we suffering like this? 
If you really love me, why did I just watch my baby get taken from me that is a gift from you and cast as bait to animals in the sea? It just doesn't make sense. If you are a loving God, and you guys have all heard this, if, if he's a loving God, why do bad things happen? Well, does it get worse than watching your son get tossed into to the sea, the Nile? Does it get worse than that? I'd rather be killed than to watch my kid happen that way. So we're talking about severe, deep, heinous suffering. Not just, not just you know, well, they were at a hard time and so they cried out to God. We're talking about their babies. Their babies, the blessing of God being cast out at the whim of those who they were slaves to. And they were working hard and it was getting worse. And every time Moses would go to the Pharaoh, Pharaoh's conclusion was, you know what? And he was advised to do this. The only way they're going to be quiet is if we turn up the heat. And so that meant more scourging, more backs that were raw. And eventually Moses, he grows up in this place. You guys know the story. The Pharaoh's daughter finds him in the reeds and then he, uh, he gets raised in Pharaoh's household and everything. But eventually he, says, he starts identifying with them. He's like, these are my people. I'm not Egyptian. I'm Israelite. And they're suffering and I'm in a palace. Eventually he goes Richter on a guy and ends up killing him who was beating up one of his fellow Israelites. So Moses, is, I mean, he was up to here with it, right? I mean, if you go so far as to kill one of the guys that's overseeing the whole, you know, building of, uh, of bricks and whatnot, then he, he, got, he was fed up. So that's the environment by which we come to Exodus 3, and that's where I want you guys to turn if you haven't already. Exodus 3 is a story where you have a fed-up guy who has the last thought in his mind of being a deliverer for people as a whole, brought to the calling of God himself. God says, I'm going to do something miraculous, and I'm going to use you, Moses. And at this point, he had fled after killing the guy, fled down to this place called Midian, which we would think uh, right now, anyways, is uh, Saudi Arabia, that land of Midian, meets his wife. His father-in-law uh, has some sheep, and that's where, verse 3, he's tending them. So he's kind of in exile, and we're told that uh, that, that Pharaoh that, and, and all the people that wanted him dead for killing the Egyptian were all gone. And it's interesting, verse 1, it says, Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. And then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. Interestingly enough, he doesn't say, I want to talk to that angel, <laughs> which really means messenger. I forget, you know, even in the Prince of Egypt, you just see the flame, you know, the bush, that's the main focus. There was an angel of the Lord, capital A, messenger of the Lord. I believe personally it was Jesus, right in the middle of the bush. A messenger, not, this is a, you know, it's just interesting. It's left out. He's like, I'm just going to see this great sight. But the angel's talking to him. Tuck that away, and, and, and we'll look at it in just a second. Anyways, he says, I'm going to go see the sight. And so the Lord saw that he turned aside to look. When he saw that, God said to him from the midst of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. So he's using it interchangeably, if you notice there. Something's happening miraculous. He says, take off your sandals. This is a holy place. This is holy ground. By the way, if you're a Jew... You don't go to the Temple Mount, even today, wearing leather. Um, it's a dead thing, and it's only, you can only be cleansed by the ashes of a red heifer, so you don't even bring leather to the party, so to speak. And here he starts out with Moses. He said, take off your sandals. 
There's no death to be found with me, and come hither. And so he does. He says in verse 14, or verse 13, Then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel, this is after he gets his commandment uh, to, to lead the people, he says, When I go to them and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Remember, he's going back to Egypt. He hasn't even been around there. So he's going back to his people, and he says, uh, What happens when they ask, Who sent you? What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So they have this dialogue, and, and Moses gets his, you know, the, the calling from God himself, and he hops right on his uh, donkey, and he goes to, to uh, Egypt, just confident in the Lord, ready to serve him. Right? No. Not at all. And I'm actually comforted by this passage. Because uh, Moses starts doubting. Look at chapter 4. Uh, verse 9. And it shall be, if they do not believe even these two signs, as God talked to Moses, or listen to your voice, that you shall make, or take water from the river and pour it on dry land, and the water which you take from the river will become blood on the dry land. In other words, give them a sign. This is the sign you should do. Then Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I'm not eloquent, neither before nor since you have spoken to your servant, but I'm slow of speech and I'm slow of tongue. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Get a calling from God, and the first thing you do is look at yourself and say, I am inadequate. And God says, yes, I knew that. You didn't have to tell me. <laughs> right? Right? And I'm inadequate. I don't have a problem admitting that. God is gracious, and he's the one who gets the glory because he calls inadequate people to serve him. Right? So if you're inadequate, you're just where you need to be. Just where you need to be. And Moses was there too. And Moses eventually gets God kind of ticked. Because he says this, he says, I will be, he said, who has made man's mouth, or who makes mute, or deaf, or seeing, or the blind? Have not I the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth, and teach you what to say. But, he said, oh my Lord, please send by the hand of whomever else you may send. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. Woo. Like, Moses, stop talking about you. It's about me. And it's a great task ahead. And you're not adequate for that. We're talking about me showing my right hand of power, and you just get out of the way. I'll give you what you need. Eventually, he throws a staff down, and you know the whole story where, where the staff becomes a snake, and he says, Moses, what's in your hand? He says, oh, I got a rod. So throw it down. Throws it down, snake, turns a snake, grabs it by the table, it turns back in his rod. He said, take this. You're going to serve me with miraculous signs going forth. So then what we do is we find, number one, how God delivered his people from slavery and bondage. Now, we actually have an archaeological find. This picture of Moses was found in the archives, and that's what he looks like. So it's cool, because he, he actually had a nice barber, apparently, to keep his beard straight. So God's plan of deliverance starts with a man, okay? Not Charlton Heston. Close, probably. First, he chooses a deliverer. Isn't it funny, our natural tendency, just by way of seriousness, you choose an actor. If you're going to get a Moses, who do you choose? John Wayne was busy, maybe, I don't know, but you get, you get that guy. Why? Because we want to look sufficient, more than sufficient. I got it all under control. and get the flowing robes and everything. When the reality is, I don't think he looked like that at all. He probably cowered a lot, you know, who knows? Anyway, he had anger problems. That's all we know about it. Um, but anyways, Exodus 3 is all about him being called. He's going to use a man, inadequate man that he is, to show some signs, and we're going to look at what the signs were. I'm going to summarize this for sake of time, so we're speeding along here. 
Okay, so the plagues. So you're going to go to Pharaoh, and you're going to announce these plagues for me, Moses, and I'm going to do it. Starts off, he says, you're going to turn the now to blood. It's interesting, Josephus, first, story, uh, first century historian, uh, he was Jewish, he talks about the, the first miracle here, the plague. And he says, the Egyptians went to drink but couldn't. They had to dig in the side of the Nile because everything in the Nile was contaminated. You had dying fish aplenty when, when this goes to blood and everything, when this miracle happens. But he said something interesting. He says, the Israelites, their water was perfectly refreshing and clear. They had all the water they wanted to drink, and yet everywhere around them was all blood. And I'm thinking, wow, isn't that interesting? In this place of severe suffering, that God is actually bringing a refreshment to them in the midst of their suffering, even while other people around them are being experiencing these, this hideous stuff. So what happens after that? You get frogs, chapter 7 all the way through 11. Uh, you know, it talks about these different things. The next two um, he says, you know, basically how it goes is, okay, Moses or Aaron, announce this next plague. They do to Pharaoh. He says, no, I'm not going to let your people go. Sometimes he says, I'll let them go. Depends on the situation when he's really tired of suffering. But Lord says, I'm going to harden his heart. It says, Lord, harden his heart. It says, Pharaoh, harden his heart. Uh, and there's another category I can't think of right now. But um, basically, you had this this Pharaoh, he's just like, yes, no, yes, no, yes, but it always ends up being no. I'm not going to let you go. There's too much at stake. Their whole society and their whole livelihood was, was based on the slave labor. You know, even in this country, it wasn't a, so much a moralistic issue for a lot of people. It was financially an issue, right? If I get rid of my slaves, I don't have the labor. I can't get the production. I don't sell for a profit as I would. It's always harder that way. And that's true for this kingdom. So, so every time he came back, he said, I'm not going to let him go. The flies or the lice all over the bodies of the Egyptians, it said. Um, the flies in the, in, in the fourth plague, uh, some commentators say they weren't so much flies as much biting insects, flies, biting them, all in their body. It says they were covered. Swarms just made the sun go away, and they were biting the, Israel, or the Egyptians, rather, but they weren't touching the Israelites. So again, God's sending us signs but his people are being spared for the most part. Uh, boils, that's never a good thing. Um, hey, <laughs> I mean, can you imagine having open sores like that, just break out? These plagues, it wasn't just like Monday and then Tuesday and then Wednesday and Thursday and Friday. Okay, this is over six months to a year. And most people would say, okay, well, what happened was the sea turned to blood because there's a red tide. And when that came in, it killed all the fish. So the frogs didn't want to stay there. So they jumped on the land. And then because the frogs died... They had lots of flies, and then they, you know, just one, it was like a snowball, and it was all naturally occurring. It was like, no, the Exodus account, being given history as we have it, would say something very differently, that it was at Moses' command, at the command of God, to say, now this, now that, this ends, this ends. There was a time schedule, and the miraculous happened, so much so that the Pharaoh had his attention all along the way. They had to respond because it was all miraculous happenings. It wasn't just a happenstance that these things happened, that's for sure. Okay, the locusts. They ate everything up. This whole place, this whole society was devastated, obviously. The complete darkness, when you think of a, of a god for the Egyptians, who do you think of first? Ra. Who is Ra? Sun god. Three days of utter darkness. It says in the scriptures they couldn't even see each other. Guess who had lights in their homes? They're like, I got all electricity in the world. I'm flipping switches, put on a lamp, little menorah. 
They had land, they, the Egyptians utter darkness. Now, what is, what, do you think God's just kind of, you know, well, I'll pick darkness. That sounds like a good one. You know, there's a reason, right? There's a reason. What is the reason? There's no one but God. Ra is a, is fantasy. There is no Ra. There's an enemy, but it's not Ra. It's not defined by the sun. God is making it very clear that nobody would doubt that there's one true God and he is sovereign and he is powerful and he's capable of moving the sun, the stars, whatever he wants to do, he's going to do it. And nobody's going to tell him no. Not us, his servants, and certainly not an invading army or an occupying one. Okay, then we get to the tent. And this is amazing, the Passover. Pharaoh didn't let him go after any of the previous nine. But when did it happen? It happened after the tent. And he spends chapter 13 and 14, I'm sorry, 11 and 12, talking about this. So turn there real quick with me. Exodus chapter 12. It starts in 11 describing it, but chapter 12 is really amazing. When you talk about Jesus being the same today, yesterday, and forever, this is these kind of passages at home. How Christ was displayed in these events is clearly come shouting through the Passover. Exodus 12, John 1, uh, 29, 35 through 37, all those different scriptures. You can write them down, taking notes perchance. But let's look at what this description is. People have been doing this ceremony, this celebration, generation after generation after generation to this very day, doing it the same way because of this, okay? So we're reading history here. Verse 1 says, Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Why? Because they're leaving. You start a new year based on the deliverance, right? Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of the month, every man shall take for himself a what? A lamb. A lamb. According to the house of his father, a lamb for household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons. According to each man's need, you shall make your account for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without what? Blemish. Perfect, spotless, beautiful, young lamb. That's who you to take. A male. A male, not a female, but a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or the goats. Now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. So four days you have it in your house. Then the whole assembly of the congregation shall kill it at twilight. And they'll take what? Some of the blood from this precious innocent lamb and put it on both doorposts and the lintel of the houses above. So what do you have? You have blood dripping right here. You have blood dripping right here. You have blood dripping right here. And when the angel of death is sent through Egypt, you have when he spots the blood on front of your house, you and your household shall be spared of your firstborn. Anybody who doesn't have the blood, the firstborn dies. Anybody who has the blood gets saved, gets passed over. And you have generation after generation after generation bringing lambs into their presence. Having little kids say, Mom, Dad, why are we doing this? Why would you kill this? Why would you kill this? Says, you know what? Our babies were thrown in time and time again. And God saw our suffering. And he said, I'm going to save them. And that's why he did it. Because he knew that Egypt was going to let us go after this plague. And God knew that we needed a, a deliverer. 
and he sent Moses. Now, what did they not necessarily get was the imagery of who? The cross. Spread one out here, one in here, the crown of thorns, and his feet, of course. So he had dripping blood off the lintel onto the ground, and he had two dripping on either side. And it was at that plague, that's, that was the clincher. That's what secured the Pharaoh saying, yes, you need to leave. Because his own firstborn was killed. That's part of the reason why we know it wasn't Ramesses. is because Ramesses died not really close to his son, but years. I mean, a lot of time transpired between the two deaths. We know right after this, the Pharaoh goes into the sea and dies. So it can't be that. Date-wise, archaeological evidence, we're looking more towards the mid-1400, 1450, 1440, and there somewhere, about 200 years before Ramesses even ruled. And why? Because in part, we can see when these things happen, it totally, completely wiped out and desecrated this society. They could not recover. It has no account of the Egyptians pursuing uh, the, the Israelites after the Red Sea. It wasn't even a care. They were hanging out in the wilderness for how many years? Forty. Never talked about, well, watch out for Pharaoh's army. Why? Because they were all gone. And their whole society was recovering. They lost their labor force. They had their crops wiped out. I mean, this is a huge thing. And some people would say, well, especially those of you who are in college, and you'll say, well, part of the reason why we know that these events didn't transpire is because there's no archaeological evidence given as far as the Egyptian record. Ramesses, that was the height of Egyptian record keeping. So it's not there, so obviously it didn't happen. Well, what if, what if you're looking in the wrong time period and this all happened before that? Okay? They're just saying if you look in the right, it's kind of like the American Revolution. If you look at it in the 20th century, you're like, where is it? It didn't happen. You're like, well, because you're in the wrong date. Let's move it. Then you might be on the right track, right? So this is what we're looking at. So one of the things I wanted to show you are the possible routes for the, uh, for the exodus. So let's go to that slide. This is kind of hard to see, I realize. But there's a, a line at the top, a line at the bottom. They're both, they both look red, but actually the bottom one's purple. The top one's red. And in the middle, there's like, a, there's like a blue line. And it ends with Mount Sinai. Traditionally, in fact, my Bible has it this way. If you look in the map in the back for the route of Exodus, if you have that, a lot of them, including mine, has it the blue line. So they're crossing over little lakes, Big lakes, too. But they're crossing over what's not really the Red Sea, but north of that. Going down into the Mount, uh, the Sinai Peninsula, ultimately to there, and then on up to, towards the Promised Land. The reason why this is not verifiable and, and holds not a lot of archaeological evidence is because it says that Pharaoh and his whole army drowned in the sea. In other words, Israel goes in. They were hemmed in on all sides. They had nowhere to go. God opens and parts the sea. They go on dry land. The Egyptians watch that, and they're like, we're going in after them. Part of the reason why that isn't even logical in these areas is because why would you chance it going through water when you can just go around the lake? This is, I mean, why would Israel even run through water? Why don't they just go around it in their, in their uh, efforts to get away from Egypt? In other words, if I'm going to go to the Pacific Ocean, I can't, like, just go around it. But if you take me up to, uh, you know, Santa Maria Lake, I'm not going to go through the middle of it. Does that make sense? So... That is very illogical. What the latest, tech, or latest archaeological evidence and research being done point to two different spots that I just want to highlight for sake of interest because it's really fascinating. The top one is what we would call Ron Wyatt's proposed route. And uh, this is where it ends out at the, uh, at the sea there. And you can see that beach area in that little path, the route of Exodus where the arrow is, that's, going, that's cutting through like a river, these, these jagged 
uh, rock formations that make the wilderness, quote-unquote. And you have enough land there to support what ends up being around 2 to 3 million people. I mean, a lot of people. And they got to fit somewhere. And it describes them, Pharaoh says, they're hemmed in by the wilderness. They're blocked in. We don't even have to rush. They're, they can't go anywhere, right? So this, this is fairly um, good as far as lining up with the Exodus account. And down here in the lower right, I don't know if you can see that, but this stretch off this land port is what ended up being a uh, chariot wheel. Uh, they have different pictures of different wheels that are down there. Um, I'm not saying that, well, there, there's conclusive proof, but it is interesting. Um, they're still doing some more excavation, but it would seem, why is there, uh, you know, there's a variety of reasons why people could postulate why it would be there. Um, but we'll just look at it for what it is. It's, it's there in the, in the, uh, the evidence record. And so uh, this is a possible place. The only problem with this is it doesn't have place for the Egyptian army to come through, pass them up, and come back another direction, which is actually in the account. So there's another place. Oh, by the way, this has like a sandbar going across it. Like the, the elevation is, is uh, pretty high crossing this. It's the Sea of Aqaba. Is the, it's the one on the right. <laughs> the one on the left and the one on the right. The reason why you're saying, well, that doesn't make sense. It's not the Red Sea. All Red Sea means is reed, place of reeds. So it could have been any of these places. The elevation under the water right here is a little bit uh, shallower, but it takes a huge dip in the middle. So they're like, eh. I don't know if, the, if they could do all of that. Let's go to the other one. At the bottom of the Sinai Peninsula, they have this little outcropping. See that little peninsula on the bottom? The mouth of water facing Baal Zephon, which is the description in Exodus. And that does look like a mouth of water. And part of the reason they were looking at it here was because Baal, because it was called Baal Zephon, it, it indicated that Baal was being worshipped there. And they've actually found a great deal of evidence that on that island, which is the yellow arrow pointing to it. Actually, they found a great deal of Baal worship there. So, and it's only 205 meters deep across from one side to the other. And this gentleman, Williams and Cornuke, these two guys were postulating that this is actually where it happened, where army of Pharaoh was over to the left. They couldn't go that way, obviously. They couldn't go into the mountains, obviously. And they couldn't cross the river because if you go north, you, you, you hit a place where the mountains there meet the sea and you can't go north. So this is really a place... That was really intriguing as far as possible places to go. Why do I say all that? Well, because we don't know. We don't know yet. But I know God did something miraculous. Which, the four feet of water, kind of the first route, the, the one that's in the back of my Bible. Can you imagine the whole Israel or Egyptian army getting drowned in four feet of water? It doesn't make sense. But people said, well, what really happened is a wind came off. And it blew that four feet of water off and made dry land because we can, we can, we've observed it happening. It's like, well, it's, it doesn't make any sense. We're talking, we're talking the whole army going down, including Pharaoh and his chariots. 600, it says. God, my point is this. God did something that nobody could observe naturally or do. If you have one bucket, of, a five-gallon bucket of water, you know how heavy that is? We're talking about enough water to be supported on either side so the Israelites could go through on dry land so that when the Egyptians said, yeah, uh, we don't really have much of a choice. Either we let them go, which isn't an option because they're all our labor force, or we pursue them. It's going to be through a sea, and if they close, you don't have any chance of survival. And so wherever they find chariot wheels, in my opinion, it's like, yeah, I'm expecting to find that. You know, I'm expecting to find that. Why? Because God did a miracle only he could do. And if we try to explain these things away because it's more plausible, well, you know, you know, the wind, it's just ridiculous. It's like, no, 
Just call for what it is. The miraculous intervention, intervention of God. Now, let's take a look at what they came out of because of this miraculous thing that God and only God could do. Slavery in Egypt. Uncaring and harsh masters, that's for sure. Hopeless future. I mean, you're like, well, you know, my dad was a slave, I was a slave. Not much happening for my kids. It's probably going to get worse. Uh, labor that never ended, of course. Death. Definitely death is ahead of them, if not in the immediate, the future. Definite fear, huh? If you're a slave, you're just never sure. It's all at the whim of your master. You don't really have any control or say into your well-being. So there's definite fear. Stripes, of course. Uh, the reason why Moses killed the guy is because the guy was getting another, you know, the Egyptian was beating up uh, one of his uh, Israelite. Stripes were plenty, especially as it got intense with the uh, plagues. And then finally, you're just left to cry out. What option do you have when you get to a place where you need God to intervene because you're powerless to do anything for yourself? That's when you cry out. And guess what? Those who cry out to God are saved. Those who cry out to God are saved, not because they're coming by saying, God, it's me, I really deserve to be saved. Or God, I've, I've, I've earned a lot of, 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 of good points in my life. I, I gave money and I, and I gave him my time. And there's a lot of reasons for you to actually save me, especially in comparison to that guy, because he's lousy. I've seen what he does. You know what I mean? You're just, you're just like, God, if you don't come through, I'm dying. I, I can't go into the wilderness. I can't go into the sea. I can't go. There's a invading army. The enemy wants me dead or at least captured to go back into slavery. I need your intervention to save me. And guess what? That was just the first time. Why? Because you couldn't do anything to assure your salvation. Christ did a miracle on your behalf on the cross, dying, eventually raising from the dead, so that you could know what? Freedom from slavery. Slavery of what? Sin. Sin that so easily entangles us. That's, that's so part of our culture, we don't even realize we're in bondage to it. And Jesus is like, you know what? If you come to me, I'm going to give you life and that abundantly. You can't have life in slavery. And at one point, you know what they want to do? When they're on the beach, they're saying, you know what? It's better for us to be back in Egypt. What if we stone? Josephus says this. If they thought they could stone Moses, give themselves up, and then go back into Egypt. That was their solution. Well, we have nowhere to go. We're hemmed in. We're toast. Um, there's nothing to do. Let's just get rid of our leader who's doing this wacky plan, taking us here, and then we can just go back, retreat. And yeah, it, was, it wasn't, I mean, there were leaks there, though. Remember that? There were leaks. You guys, I had too many hangovers. I didn't have a lot of hangovers, but I had enough to know this is slavery. I'm not experiencing abundant life. That's probably why it was easy for me at the time to say, Jesus, there's a, there's a future with you. You're not going to harm me. You're not going to manipulate me. You're going to give me life, and I want to I see what that looks like. So let's go, God. I want to be in that place. I don't want to spend time having an evil taskmaster who doesn't care about me. Relationships that go awry. Drugs, alcohol, you guys know. It's, I'm not telling anything you don't know. I'm just saying that sometimes we don't see it for what it is. Sin, when you sin, you're slave to it, unless you're what? You're rescued miraculously. And that happens through only one place. Boom. Right here. And God says, you know what's going to free the Israelites? Is when you put the blood on the posts and over the house. And you're not going to be judged. The people who aren't, my people, will be. And it's no different when we come to Jesus. 
Because we're simply saying, Jesus, you had to do the miraculous. I couldn't do it for myself. And that's why, you guys, you can come to the cross every time and leave, as Hebrews would put it, in boldness, in confidence that you're received, that you're loved. That God would do all that for you is enough to convince you, isn't it? To say, yeah, maybe it's true. Maybe God did, does love me and not just everybody that's at church. Slavery to sin looks pretty similar. If you put this list, uncaring, harsh masters, hopeless future, labor that never ends. How long do you work for salvation? How do you pay for your sin with good deeds? How does that happen? Never ends. Death's the final wage. Wages of sin is death. Fear of judgment. Of course you're fear of judgment. You don't have confidence going before God who's holy. Definitely end up with some scars, don't you? In here and even on your body. And you cry out for God's hand to move. He will move. I want you to go to John chapter 8. We're almost done. And look at Jesus' perspective on all this. Chapter 8 of John, verse 48. Then the Jews answered and said to him, that is Jesus, do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? And Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. And I don't seek my own glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Most assuredly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see what? Anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. And then the Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham is dead, and the prophets are dead. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who is dead, and the prophets that are dead? Who do you make yourself out to be? And Jesus answered, if I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my father who honors me, of whom you say that he is your God. Yet you have not known him. But I know him. And if I say I don't know him, I should be a liar like you. But I don't know him. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it, and he was glad. So Jesus is talking about something way over their heads, huh? They're like, what? And they respond accordingly. And the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham? And Jesus said to him, most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Do you think they were ignorant on what he was saying? Do you think it didn't mean all that Jesus meant for it to mean? You want to you know something crazy? I'm the one who spoke to Moses. I am the angel of the Lord. And I had the heart to save the Israelites. And not only that, but as John the Baptist says, I'm the lamb that ultimately shed his blood so that you could know deliverance from slavery. I'm the one who cared, who saw the suffering and sent a deliverer and ultimately I took my place to save you. And they could not get their minds around that. You're not 50 years old. How could that be possible? Go to Romans chapter 6. Paul picks up this whole thing with slavery in vividness. 
talking about our own condition of being slaves of sin. He says in verse 15, what then? Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? In other words, you're standing on the shore of, of what's most likely Saudi Arabia. What do you do now? Do you swim back across the Red Sea just to go back to Egypt? Why? That's ridiculous. He says, don't you know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you're that one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. There's a whole new way to live, and you've been given freedom from your slavery, so why go back to it towards sin? What fruit did you have then in the things that you were now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end, everlasting life. That's where we're headed. Everlasting life with God. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ, our Lord. So the red cross and similarities, God was needed to perform a miraculous deed and was faithful. We couldn't do it ourselves. Everything against us, defeated totally by him. Sin's gone, the enemy's gone, death's gone. Everything defeated by Jesus. Perfect timing. Man, he couldn't have come any, any sooner, could he? Just like, or any later. It was just perfect timing. In the fullness of time, it was said Christ went to the cross. Requires faith to receive the deliverance. If you don't ever come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I need you, it's just, it just stands what it is. It's a, it's a miracle that's not your own yet. Completely efficacious or effective, not incomplete. Jesus said what? It is finished. It is done. They're on the other side. You don't have to fear anymore. And they're off to a land of blessing and newness of life. That's true for us. It was true for them. So finally, all these reasons we have to be in awe of God who chose to save us, which really ultimately just drives us in worship and song with our lives. And it's interesting, in when they get to the other side, when they get through the sea and they see the Egyptians go down, listen to this first two verses that Moses starts singing to God. He couldn't help it. Everything's done. We're safe. That emotion, we're not going to see any more of our babies going to the Nile. He says, Then Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord and spoke, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider that which was pursuing me to stay in slavery, he has thrown that into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. See that? We're saying the same thing. That's my God. He died for me. He died for me. My God died for me, and I will praise him. He has become my salvation. Jehovah is salvation. Jesus, our Savior. Isn't that amazing? So he says, I am. We're going to stop there and uh, just kind of relish in the miracle, which is the cross. And um, as we do, we're going to bring together our, uh, our tithes and our offerings. And if you're a guest, again, we say this a lot, but it's important, you know, don't have any obligation to give. 
But how, how silly would it be to be on the beaches on the other side and say, well, what does God have me to do today as if it's some burden? If you're in newness of life, you're just like, God, whatever you want me to do, it's yours, it's done, you know? So that's the same we do with our giving. It's like, Lord, this is fun living. I want to know where you want to give, and I want to know what your will is for me. So we're going to do that. And uh, why don't we stand? If you guys continue standing, that's up to you. You can totally sit, kneel anytime. But let's stretch our legs, and let's do what's appropriate, what Moses did, which is to stand and sing a song of praise to our great and awesome God. Is that cool with you? Is that something you'd like to do in response to what we've seen him do? All right, let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you. It is not enough for the miracle of the Red Sea, which for us is the cross, where we could cross from death to life, where we could go from slavery to freedom, so that we could see the blood of the Passover lamb being shed once and for all. Because even as John the Baptist said, behold, there is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the whole world. And Lord, that is, that is something that we know only could be in your heart. You could only bring freedom from death in a miraculous way because that's the kind of God you are. And we're here to worship you because of it with our, with our lives, with our time, with our energies, with our excitement, Lord. Our salvation is not a boring thing. It's not something to just take for granted. It's not something to just kind of tuck away as interesting facts. And yeah, that's a great way. They could have gone that way or that way, Lord. Salvation changes our lives because we don't have to be slaves to sin any longer. And Lord, how silly for us to live in sin, as Paul would say, when we've died to it. So I pray, God, that you would help me as well as my brothers and sisters and anybody in this room that does not have the confidence that they have crossed over from slavery to freedom. I pray that you would save us even afresh this very day to live anew for you, knowing that our faith is rewarded by your presence and by your abundant life. So thank you, God. We celebrate you. We give our tithes and our offerings. We come to you as worshipers because you've done everything for the helpless. Love you, God.